Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin and my co-host is Bruce Kelly, BK. We got a great show for you this week. Uh, Michael Kitsis. Everybody knows Michael Kitsis, the man Michael who Kitsis no leading off. introduction. Correcto. The uh, Nerd's Eye View podcaster, blogger at all. And Ben Harrison of Pershing. He's going to talk to us about what's going on in custody and uh, what's happening at the Insight Conference or what happened at the Insight and Conference. And at Pershing, too. A lot of changes, it sounds like, at Pershing. Yes, sir. And uh, also want to thank our sponsors this week, Broadridge. So right now, we're going to get right into the show. Okay, we've got Michael Kitsis, Head of Planning Strategy at Buckingham Strategic Partners and co-founder of the XY Planning Network. Formerly, um, a year ago, Michael Kitsis was the Director of Research at Pinnacle Advisory Group, switched firms in March of 2020, 2020, sorry. And uh, if you don't know Michael Kitsis, you're probably not in the financial planning or wealth management industry. He is a prolific podcaster, blogger, public speaker. He always wears a blue shirt. He's a husband and father, and we're really happy to have you with us here today, Michael. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the opportunity to join. We're going to try and pick your brain on on as many things as we can in the time we have with you. Uh, I wanted to start out, Michael. I talked to you a week or so ago about niche practices. I know it's a it's a growing area. It seems that you cannot be too fine tuned when it comes to a niche. What are some of the things you're seeing out there, and 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 is this a requirement now, or is it becoming a requirement to have a niche? I I think it is quickly becoming a requirement to have a niche. And you to me, well, I I guess I should rein that back slightly. I don't think it's becoming a requirement to be a niche. I just don't think you're going to enjoy your practice very much in the future if you don't have one. And and I know that's a loaded thing to say, but I I, I look at this just, you know, I'm I'm not making like blanket predictions out of thin air. I just look at pretty much any other established profession. Who does better? The generalist CPA who just handles whatever tax returns or accounting needs that that come in, or the one who has a deep specialization in a particular area of corporate tax law who can you know, command a thousand dollars an hour for specialized advice. Who does better, the generalist attorney uh, on the corner who can do that, you know, that will, that real estate transaction, fix your parking ticket, and the other thing as any generalist can do, or the one who has a deep specialization in divorce law and handles all the high net worth divorces in the area and bills out at a thousand dollars an hour. Who does better, the you know the neurosurgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, or the general family practitioner? And you know, I say that with love. My father-in-law spent almost his entire career as a general family practitioner, and you know, wonderful man, and incredible work that he did with patients. And that was a really tough practice that just got harder as the years went by. And you know, the, that phenomenon has been out there in one established profession after another. That there reaches a point where specialization, which is really to me what niching is about, specialization is what ultimately allows you to A, command higher higher fees, higher premiums on your expertise, and B, differentiates you from all the other people that don't have that level of expertise. And, and you know, that's been writ large in pretty much every established professional services domain out there. You know, we're maybe a little bit late in having it come for us as financial advisors, but here we are. It's happening live in real time. Well, what do you think about what? Tell us about it, how it's happening, though. Is, is this some? Is this like the next evolution of the financial planning profession? 
Yeah, it, it sort of is and it and it isn't. So on the one hand, you know, we've spent the better part of the past 20 years in in what I call the the evolution from products to advice. So, you know, I started out as a financial advisor 21 years ago now. It said financial advisor on my business card, but my job was to sell variable universal life insurance. I, I worked for a large life insurance company and, and I was there to sell a life insurance product. And, you know, a lot of advisors that started 20 plus years ago, either we started out selling insurance and annuities, or we started selling mutual funds. But we were in a world of selling products, and and you know, our our value and our differentiation was dictated by the quality of the products that the company gave us to sell. Which meant, if you wanted to have a lot of success, you would affiliate with a very high quality company that had very good products available for sale. And the world we live in today is fundamentally different. I don't sell my company's products now. I may help my clients implement something, but my value proposition is nestled between my two ears. Right? It's it's my knowledge, it's my expertise, it's the stuff that I've got in my brain my ability to explain it to others, help them apply it and implement it in their lives and, and coach and guide them along the way to get the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. And in that domain, we're all making that shift. But what it actually means is we used to at least differentiate ourselves by the quality of our company's products and services. Now we're in increasingly in an advice domain that is product agnostic, right? We've all got these giant open architecture platforms where I can implement pretty much anything for any client which means all the things that we used to differentiate on are going away because everyone's got access to everything. The primary thing we differentiate on is our knowledge and expertise, but we're all differentiating the same knowledge and expertise. I provide individualized, customized, personal financial planning for my clients based on their individual needs and objectives with my experience and credentials. And like, we put all the same things on our websites and clients can't tell us apart. And to me, the most fundamental way that you can tell that clients can't tell us apart is if you actually look in Google Trends, the number one search for a financial advisor-related search is financial advisor near me. Now, on the one hand, for a lot of us, that's like, yeah, that's you know, clients niche. like, yeah, clients, yeah, like, you know, on the way, like clients like Who's local relationships. I'm like, yeah, so your your niche is your zip code. Like, what that really means is your primary your primary differentiator is your zip code. And that you happen to be the only one within like five square miles of your client who happens to do what you do. And do you, but do you see any broader distinctions kind of emerging? You're you're a guy who watches these things and has these fascinating observations. You know, well, are well, you so, seeing any breakdown in these segments of of niches and the like? Well, absolutely. So so what that means when you think about it that way is. When I look at most of the, most of the advice firms that have grown over the past 20 years, almost all of them grew in one of three types of niches. Either A, some of them actually had sort of real bona fide niches. And a lot of really big successful firms have niches that we don't even necessarily realize because they don't talk about, but it is how they started. You know, Allworth, Hanson McLean started out with a niche of PG&E and other energy company employees. Right. Uh, Sullivan, right, right, Brea, right. Spiros and Blaney, SBS. That was very common in the old brokerage model, right? You would get in there and you'd have... Well, it's always been an effective way to, to market, right? To market, like people yeah. went after corporate executives or comp- executives from a particular company. They went after niches of professions. You know, doctors was a massive niche Dentists, for the industry for many, many right. years. Dentists, right? You know, so some of us built practices on, frankly, what were niches then and would still be niches now. Most of the rest of us built on one of two other types of niches. Either A, we built in the niche of being a, a fee-only advisor back when almost nobody was actually giving advice for fees and running on an that AUM used to model. Be a they distinction. were all commissions. That was a real distinction. Right. Not so much now that you know hybrid RIA is everywhere, even in the brokerage world, and the majority of broker dealers charge more fees than they do 
commissions. The whole world has shifted, but being an advisor that charged fees was actually a legit niche 20 plus years ago. <laughs> and zip code yeah. right. was a niche because you could, you could legitimately say like, yeah, there's a bunch of other air quotes, financial advisors in the area, but they're all here to sell you products and insurance and investments, and the other stuff. I actually do comprehensive financial plans and give advice for individualized for my clients. And you were and legitimately differentiated. Right? You could actually show them the office of financial planners. In the and, back, right? and you know, you would say, I have CFP certification and right. fewer than one in right. 10 advisors had CFP certification. So that was legitimately differentiating. Right. So almost all advisors historically have lived in basically one of three niches. I charge fees when everyone else charges commissions. I'm niched by my zip code or I'm niched by, we'll call like a, a, a bonafide niche. And the fundamental problem is that the first two are going away, right? The whole industry is moving from products to advice and from commissions to fees. So the fee differentiator is working. The zip code based differentiation is breaking down both because more advisors everywhere are in the advice business. So, you know, it used to be you and nine salespeople in the area. And now all 10 of you are providing advice. On top of that, consumers have now figured out after the pandemic, they can go on the internet and find the best advisor in the country, regardless of their zip code. So zip code differentiation is breaking down further. And the, and the only one that's left is the niche of actually focusing in the niches. You know, we, we built in all these different types of niches in the, few, in the past, but the niche around fees and the niche around zip code, like not to say those are bad things, but they just don't differentiate the way they did before. And not all consumers are even seeking advisors by that criteria anymore because they've got new and different ways to look. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Michael, uh, well, first of all, I'm gonna. I've decided I'm gonna start a financial planning firm and name it Financial Advisors Near Me, so that I show <laughs> yeah, up all I just, just dominate that absolutely. Uh, uh, near me, wherever you are, so someone. So yeah, you know, there's so the, many advisor <laughs> review sites getting started. Someone who's listening to yeah. this, like, just, just, just go, just go grab that right now and, and yeah. go for it. So the other thing you mentioned fees as a differentiator. I know you talk a lot about fees, and I know the X by Planning Network was based on moving beyond AUM fees. Is that correct? Is that safe correct. to say? Correct. So when we started XY Planning Network back in 2014, we started it primarily on the basis of what we then called the retainer of the monthly retainer model. Now a lot right. of people are calling the monthly subscription model. But we yeah, we started specifically on the basis of saying, uh, you know, putting in the context of the conversation at the time, Everyone was making the comment, well, you know, there's no way to serve next generation clients profitably because we charge a percentage of assets under management. They don't have a lot of assets to manage. A percentage of a small number is a small number. Therefore, it's not economical to service younger clients, to which uh, we said, you know, candidly, like that's BS. You know, you're, you're only struggling with serving next generation clients because you're viewing them through an asset lens instead of viewing them through an advice lens. If you view them through an advice lens, you know, do they need advice? Absolutely. Right. I, I mean, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, what would you advise young people on? You know, their needs are really simple. I'm like, have you talked to anybody in their 30s and 40s lately? And just ask them, like, describe for me what your financial life is like, you know, while you're building your building your career, uh, spouse's career, starting a business, uh, house, family, kids, college, all that other stuff, like all the things that come at you fast in your 30s and 40s. Oh, and by the way, your parents are having some health issues, so you may have to help them out as well. Like if there's one thing, if there's one word I never, ever, ever hear when I talk to someone in their 30s and 40s about what their financial life is like, simple, not the word that comes up. Ever. So how, 
But how's the AUM fee going in in XY planning? Is it is it sticking to that retainer or hourly or well, whatever? It, so so two things that we see happening over time. So number one, you know, subscription fees just open the door for those clients, right? The reality at the end of the day is many of them, they have the financial wherewithal to pay. Like they're making good income and they can write a check for financial advice. It just can't be a percentage of their assets. They just need to be able to write a check with the caveat that, you know, writing like a giant once a year check is a big number for most people. We pay basically every bill on a, on a monthly basis. That's, that's sort of been the, well, that's been the world of, of monthly paychecks and monthly rent for a long, long time. But now, you know, almost every industry has been converting to a, a, a subscription fee model. And it works like it works for every other industry. And it works in financial planning as well. When you convert an advice fee into a monthly subscription fee, you make it manageable for people, even if it doesn't have to be a really small fee, it just fits into their cash flow. I mean, there are a lot of people that pay one two, three hundred $300 a month for, you know, gym memberships and personal trainers and like cell phones and a lot of other hobbies. Like you can get in a pretty decent advice fee. Uh, and we see some advisors going higher than higher than that on that basis alone. Now, but if you work the, with those clients over time, what you're going to find is they do begin to accumulate wealth, and you do get some questions, some options as they accumulate wealth of either I'm going to increase my subscription fees as their wealth increases and they have more complexity and they need more advice, which may include portfolios, or what we do see for some members in in XY Planning Network is. And then they start adding in an AUM component mm-hmm. for the clients who are now building assets. Now, it tends to be a lower AUM fee than what a lot of other advisors charge because they've got a healthy upfront advice fee that's actually really meant to cover the entire advice relationship. It's not a lost leader to get the assets. It's actually a profitable advice offering. But they may still end out layering in some AUM fee on the side for the clients that want help with their portfolios as well for just sort of the the narrow sleeve of actually helping clients with their investment management. And so we do see AUM fees tend to be lower in XYPN than the general advisor base. What I'm getting at is, do you see a trend industry-wide away from AUM fees? Because that was the migration to get away from commissions. But now it seems like there's a, a push to move away from AUM for various reasons. You know, there are a lot of advisors that make the case around that. I have to admit, I, I do not. I don't make the case around that. And I, and I say that as, you know, the, the one that both founded XY Planning Network to do this. And I mean, we have almost 1,500 advisors now at XYPN built around monthly subscriptions. And a few years ago, we founded a company called Advice Pay, which literally does payment processing for these fees. You know, we, we may do $100 million in financial planning fees that run across Advice Pay this, we, this year as just advice businesses very rapidly ramping up of advisors charging fees. But but here's the thing. Most of the growth that we're seeing in what I broadly call fee-for-service models, just all the different ways we can slice this up, monthly fees, quarterly fees, annual retainers, net worth and income-based fees, we see lots of different formulations. So I'm broad umbrella now. I just call this fee-for-service. What we see at the end of the day in the fee-for-service model is that the primary growth of the fee-for-service model is not competing against the AUM model. It's getting non-AUM clients, either the people who were never going to delegate their portfolios, like, hey, I got all my stuff at Vanguard. I'm fine with it. I just want to pay you for advice, like advice, right. advice, because my life's really complex. It has nothing to do with my portfolio. My portfolio is fine. 
I got complexity issues. I'm dealing with, you know, growing a business and I'm getting divorced and I want to start another business and I got to deal with my kids and I got cash flow issues and uh, uh, we may have a liquidity event in our business. Like all this different stuff's coming at them. There could be a lot of money, a lot of financial complexity at stake. But they're like, yeah, my portfolio is cool. It's at Vanguard. I don't need help with that. Like I'm, I'm fine. I need help with all this other stuff. So what we're seeing is the growth of, of fee for service is really happening with non-AUM clients. So people that have income and wealth and complexity challenges, but just not necessarily portfolio needs. Maybe they don't want to delegate because you know they're cool with some Vanguard or RoboAdvisor or self-directed solution. Maybe they're high income, but they just don't have a lot of net worth yet. You know, the, the doctor who finished residency uh, is now making two to three hundred thousand dollars a year, could easily pay five thousand dollars a year in advice fees. But he's also got two hundred thousand dollars student loan debt, starting a, a family, buying a house, saving for college, wants to start a medical practice in three years. There ain't going to be a portfolio for like a decade, but could pay thousands of dollars of advice fees now. Uh, and, and we see advisors moving further down market. On at least down market relative to where advisors have been historically into much more of a mass market and mass affluent level because you can just start charging subscription fees that a much wider base of people can afford. And we see advisors experimenting with $150 a month, $100 a month, $75 a month, and trying to move down into levels of clients that we historically didn't serve very well at all. Well, Michael, and I, I'm kind of surprised, even though it would be sort of like burning down your own house, that you don't see some of the problems of charging clients based on their assets under management. And I know you've just broken down all kinds of different ways to do it, but most advisors still charge, and I know the number's not 1%, but it's close to 1%. Yeah, we, we can use it as a rule of a right. rule of thumb approximation. Yep. I just think it 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 works for people who have money and want to delegate it. You know, we take shots at each other all the time around fee models. What, you know, and, and again, I I still sit across from from prospects. I'm still an advisory firm. You know, I've done this for a long time. I don't. You know, the only people I don't hear complaining about AUM fees are the people who pay them. They're <laughs> fine with it. They're not complaining. It's just it. It's well aligned. <laughs> it's psychologically comforting when they're doing well. We're doing well. When they are hurting, yeah. we're hurting. You know, I I remember sitting across from uh, client conversations in 2008, 2009. You know, and, and and having someone say, you know, our portfolio is down a lot. That that probably means like your firm must be hurting a little too. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, we're doing okay, but you know, this this hits our our revenue and profits pretty significantly as well. And he said, you know what? Good. Like, I'm I'm glad that you're you're feeling a little pain along with me. It makes me feel like we're in this together. You know who likes the one percent is the private equity funds who are buying all the RIAs, Michael. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean at the at the end of the day, if you want an indication of how strong the model is, you know, the people with giant pools of money think this model is so incredibly strong, they're bidding up the valuations in the middle of what we're supposed to be robo advisors taking us down. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I certainly, as many advisors, do sit across from that subset of clients that say, like, I don't want to pay you an AUMP. I don't want to turn my portfolio over. Like these fees are ridiculous. I don't want this. But the problem is, though, like, those are non-AUM clients. I mean, it, it has always been true that if you sit across from a client who doesn't want to delegate and you say it costs 1% of your assets to have the manage here, they're going to say, I don't want to do that. I just want to pay you a fee. I mean, I've, I had those conversations 20 years ago. Clients would come in and say, well, you know, the way it works here is we manage your assets on a holistic basis, and then we provide you comprehensive financial planning advice. And they would say, well, like, can I just buy a few hours of your time? And we say, oh, I'm sorry, just we don't, we don't really do that. We're focused really on clients that want the holistic relationship. 
So that has always been out there. And, and I do think it's true. I, I've said for a long time, you know, and apropos to the earlier conversation, the, the truth is the assets under management model is a niche. It is a niche. It is a niche for a subset of consumers that have significant wealth, a willingness to delegate. And for them, it's a great model. We've even done some research on our site. Like it's about seven to 10% of people. You know, about one in three households at least has at least $100,000 of investable assets outside their primary residence. About half of those have the money still tied up in a 401k plan. About one in three of those are willing to delegate just based on forced or research about consumer psychographics. And if you take a third of a half of a third and you do the math on total households in the US, you end out with about seven to ten percent of the US that is willing to willing to delegate to an advisor and has enough assets to do it. So for that seven percent. It's a great model. They like it. They're happy with it. And they're not complaining about it. And, and they have how and, much and of it, the wealth? And it works. Michael. Pardon me? How much do the 7% have of the wealth pool? Oh, of total assets wealth? I don't know by the sheer math, but a, a very large percentage of it. Right. Right. I mean, it, it, more than it 50%, is, in other words. Probably. Right. right you know, right. whole other income inequality can of worms discussion there. Right. But yes, like, I, no, no doubt. Like, the overwhelming majority of wealth so and assets works, are concentrated. Them, is what in you're saying. Yeah, like, you know, lo and behold, it turns out the percentage of assets in our management model is a great model for the niche of people who have piles right. of assets they want to delegate. So fantastic. Like, if that's what they want, I got great services for you. We'll be in a wonderful relationship as the PE dollars are showing. Fantastic business model, great strength, great longevity. You see it in everything from industry retention rates to the rising valuations of the model. The one big caveat to it is, it is a niche that only works for about 7% seven, seven of households. <laughs> and there are 300,000 financial advisors who are all focusing increasingly out of commissions and into the, and into the AUM model. And if you just do the math of it, when 7% of households fit this niche and 300,000 advisors go after it, there are literally not enough clients for all of us to be successful at the same time. You do the math, there's like 20 to 25 clients per advisor if every single advisor does the AOM model at the same time. So, so what's happening is as we all move in this direction, why are we seeing so much growth in fee-for-service? It's not because the AUM model is broken or under threat or under duress. It's doing great as evidenced by all the flows of acquisitions into it. The problem is not everybody can win in that model at the same time. There is only so much addressable market when you've got a niche model that pursues 7%. And when we, when we look broadly at like, why is fee-for-service growing so much? It's growing because there's this giant other like 50% portion of the pie that everybody is moving away from and no one is serving and no one is offering ongoing advice services to that you can do with a different fee model. And, and the reason why we're seeing subscription fees grow so well in particular, you know, the hourly model has been around for decades, but the problem is the hourly model requires a huge volume of clients at a very small transaction per client to get to a, a decent mass and scale. And that's really difficult if every hour that you spend going to market for a new client is an hour you didn't spend billing your client. That's really hard in the hourly model. Subscription models work in a way that hourly didn't because it is a recurring revenue model. That's part of why AUM firms became so valuable so quickly. It's a recurring revenue model. So I'm not just getting one client once. I'm getting one client who might work with me three, five, 10, 15, 20 plus years in an escalating relationship over time. And so that's why we're seeing, I think, such growth around 
subscription model in particular, and just when we look at what's happening in advice pay, the overwhelming majority of growth in the fee-for-service model right now is recurring subscriptions and retainers, not just people charging more one-time hourly and project fees. You know, recurring revenue models are incredibly powerful. Technology now is making that possible, right? I couldn't have done that by having my client cut a check every month, but I can do it now automated through technology. And as we see that model ramping up, what we're finding is a whole huge, immense amount of growth over there, because basically that's where the, that's where the blue ocean is. That's where the, the wide open space is where hardly anyone is competing. Not because there's anything wrong with the AUM model or that it's broken or that it's damaged. It works great for people who have a lot of assets to delegate and want to work in a holistic relationship. But there are just literally only so many of them. And when we're in an industry with you know 95% retention rates, there just aren't that many clients in play. And there's just only so many new wealth creation events that happen in any particular year. And so the pressure is not on the AUM model because there's anything wrong with AUM. The pressure is on the AUM model because we just can't all win in it at the same time. And that's why you're seeing growth for in all the fee-for-service models. Well, that's also driving consolidation, right, across both the brokerage. Yeah, to, to some you extent. Know, right? if, if, you know, Morgan Stanley if, buying E-Trade. Yeah. If, if we're all going after the same pool of clients, then what it quickly comes down to is my organic, my organic growth rates are going to get really slow because there just aren't that many unattached clients left in play. So how do I grow? Either A, I, I just literally acquire firms and grow inorganically, or B, I acquire opportunities to generate new lead flow, which is why we're seeing everything from you know, Morgan Stanley bought E-Trade to get at the corporate services departments that services all the retirement plans with the executives with stock comp plans, because that's a big wealth creation opportunity uh, to, to bring business in. You see you know, Tiffin Group saying they're going to spend $100 million acquiring financial media sites to drive lead gen. You see Zoe Financial raising $10 million to provide lead generation services. All of this is driven around the fact that clients are getting scarcer. It's just there aren't that many left who don't already have an advisor 20 plus years into this movement towards the AUM model. So nothing negative about the model, but we just can't all win at it simultaneously. So for any individual advisor, the question becomes, you know, how are you going to be better than the competition to, to win more than your share? How are you going to be different than your competition to win more than your share? Or are you just going to, you know, go go sail in bluer oceans that aren't so bloody red with competition? And so we're we're seeing some of all of that, right? Rise of niches, firms reinvesting in their value proposition to be better, and all of this explosive growth in the fee for service models to serve non AUM clients that aren't getting served today. Hey, uh, something else we're seeing, Michael, is uh, is Bitcoin. I saw a rudimentary survey that you did on Twitter. Uh, a week or so ago, and uh, oh, he's got to watch out and, a little for Twitter and, polls. Yeah, but and, no, it's, and, it's interesting just to get a, fun. Come on, uh, it's fun to get a gut impulse of what's going on. They're random. There. They're so random. Yeah. Whenever I see uh, you kind of poking your nose around somewhere interesting, I, I perk up, and I I know you and I already talked about this, but uh, tell us a little bit about what you found and why are you looking at this? I mean, where do you see Bitcoin fitting into the the wealth management space? So the 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 piece that makes me interested in in the in the Bitcoin realm, you know, I, I candidly is just when I think about this from the advisor's end, you know, we get I mean we get nervous if our clients buy a little bit too much in stocks that it can go down thirty or forty percent in a really nasty bear market. 
And then we talk about cryptocurrencies that can go down, well, have gone down 70 or 80%, can conceivably can go down more. You know, we, we just, we don't have a lot of track record to know quite how volatile that can be. And so to me, I mean, even aside from just all of the discussion around is crypto the future or not? Is it going to stand up as, a, as an independent asset class or not? Like I, Even that dynamic aside, there's just a sheer level of volatility dynamic around to what extent are we even willing to get on this ride with our clients because we, we do put some serious liability on the table the moment that we're actually making recommendations on it. And so in that context, it wasn't a surprise to me that when we when we did the poll and looked out there, what we found was very, very few advisors that are actually actively recommending it in their portfolios. So fewer than 10% of advisors were recommending crypto in their portfolios. And I think some of those actually weren't recommending cryptocurrency. They were recommending like blockchain ETFs and blockchains really is a separate thing from actual crypto. But what we did see was, you know, the overwhelming majority of advisors are essentially facilitating clients or saying, you can do it with your outside dollars. I'm not ready to recommend it yet because I'm not ready to take on the liability if this thing blows up because it's so, so volatile. But there is, the number of advisors that were actively dissuading clients was only about a quarter of them, which is not, not a trivial number. But I, I think if I'd done that survey two or three years ago and said, you know, how many advisors are actively dissuading clients from making allocations into cryptocurrency, I would have seen the overwhelming majority of advisors saying they're like actively trying to talk clients out of it. And I can see a shift here where we're not ready to invest it maybe because of the volatility, but we're not dissuading them the way that we were before. We're just kind of letting clients say, you know, you want to do that? Like, do it with your own money. Let me let me know how it turns out. And, and then you see platforms like, you know, Tyrone Ross's uh, on-ramp cropping up to say, hey, well, at least we'll build some of the integrations to get that data into your portfolio accounting and performance reporting system so you can track it for your clients. Right. Hey, I, I tell, you mentioned talking to clients. You're all over the place. You're, you're a brand. It's like talking to you is like, it's like we're talking to IBM right now or something. So well, do you work with clients? <laughs> yeah, I love your blog, Nerds Eye View, by the way, yeah. Michael. <laughs> Thank I really you. enjoy it. I mean, are you, are you actually working with clients? I asked that, or I heard, I saw someone ask that question to Josh Brown a few years ago, and he didn't respond real positive to, to that. Uh, we're not, we're not suggesting you're not working, Michael, but um, are you working as a financial planner? <laughs> so I'm, so I'm not taking clients directly at this point. When I made the transition from Pinnacle to Buckingham last year, uh, I did not bring clients with me. Part of that was just, you know, I, Spent a long time with Pinnacle trying to help them build the firm. You know, it was an ensemble firm. Clients were clients of the firm. And I, I just wasn't even interested in trying to take clients away. It was a, a very amicable split. We just decided to mm-hmm. go different directions. So when I went to Buckingham, I did not bring clients with me. And I'm not actively taking clients on at Buckingham. So I still get pulled into the occasional complex prospect situation where someone's got questions and we're trying to figure out how to navigate particularly messy situations. But uh, at this point, for just my career and where I am, I, you know, candidly, at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm more excited by all the building and the research and the work that we can do in the planning world than ongoing client relationships. And and you know, truthfully, for me, like that was a challenge for me even ten years ago. That I know for for some advisors, just you know, they they enjoy the ongoing dynamics and 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 interacting with clients and that ongoing relationship. And just for me. I had a point fairly early on of kind of 
the same clients having the same conversations over and over again. And some advisors are really good at that. I just need the constant, fresh, new challenges. And I just didn't enjoy ongoing, long-term client relationships in the same way. You know, nothing negative to those who do, but I, you know, I had been looking to wind down how much I'm managing ongoing client relationships for a long time. I still love the opportunities, though, to kind of get pulled into a messy, complex client situation and help out, as well as as kind of working with some of the prospects of the firm and business development. So you know, I'm a I'm a problem solver type. So I like the new client situations more than the ongoing client situations. Fortunately, we have wonderful advisors at the firm who are really happy to work with clients on an ongoing basis, and so I am quite happy to have them. Uh, have those opportunities. Okay. I just have one more question and see if Bruce has anything. You have built, obviously, a very powerful brand. You're known pretty much across wealth management, I have to assume. You've got so many things going on. Is this something that other advisors should or could aspire to? Or or is this just beyond what most advisors should be thinking about if they really want to work with clients? Well, I would make the distinction that if you want to build a business and a, and, and a brand, I'll just even say that at a high level, there is a difference between that and working with clients. You know, that, that's not specific even to our industry. I mean, Michael Gerber famously wrote the E-Myth and just talked about the difference between working in the business and on the business. And people who build and scale large enterprises usually at some point end out spending the bulk of their time working on the business and not working in the business. And I think that was part of my evolution. You know, as, as I think you alluded to, that was part of the, the evolution for folks like like Josh Brown as well. And there are certainly people that I think do a, a midpoint of that. You know, they've they've been building some of their own brands, but they also continue working uh, with clients and enjoy their work with clients. You know, folks like Taylor Schulte, who I think has done that well. So you can certainly do that. I, I think at least up to a point. But you know, when I look across all the different businesses that we have now, between you know the the Kits's platform itself and XY Pline Network and Advice Pay and New Planner Recruiting and FP Pathfinder and all the rest. I mean, we, you know, we've grown the businesses and added more than 100 team members over the past six years. And at some point, just driving that much growth and and hiring opportunities for the team and all the work that we do for all the different groups that we serve, because some of those serve consumers and some of those serve advisors, there's just only so much time in the day. And and even from the personal productivity end, you know, just we're at the point now where the decisions I make in the business have more of an impact on the business than the next client that I could serve anyways. And so part of it is just the nature of what happens if you're one of those people that's just kind of wired to grow larger businesses and enterprises is at some point you have to re- reassess where your own time is spent that has the biggest impact on the business. And you know, when I look out at the, you know, the folks that have built some of the biggest and largest advisory firms in the country, you know, the truth is almost none of them are working and servicing clients directly anymore. And, right. and the few that do usually just retain a small handful of clients, just so they can you know, remember what it's like to sit across from a client. You don't want to lose touch of that. That's the same reason I like to sit in on you know some prospect meetings and messy client meetings. But virtually all of them at some point find that just the, the biggest way to help your own business is, is to work on the business and not do as much work in the business. And that naturally gravitates you out of client-facing roles if you really want to build an enterprise. Excellent. Bruce, uh, you have a final question? Yeah, Michael, all great stuff. Like I said, I love Nerd's Eye View. I was just curious as your kind of imp- your reaction or your 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 overall take on, you know, the entrance of these private equity buyers into the marketplace and the 
increasing valuations that well-run RIAs are getting. I just finished wrapping up. I just wrapped up a, a feature story, cover story we're running in a couple of weeks. And, you know, the top of the market is getting pretty frothy, I guess. People were talking about firms commanding valuations of 18 times EBITDA and whispering about certain deals going for 20 times EBITDA even. And then you have Ron Carson shopping his firm around and trying to get somewhere between 700 and million and a billion dollars evaluation for that. He's looking to sell a minority chunk, you know. So we're talking about real money here, you know. Yeah. Six years ago when Ron sold his first chunk of his firm, a 30, 29%, 30% stake, it was valued at around 130 million, you know. So but it only had six billion in assets versus seventeen and change now. So just but, curious you know, three, to your three X three X the firm and six X the valuation right, three, kind exactly. of says, well, says a lot about where the market's gone over double, the past few right? years. That means double, you know. Yeah. So just your take on all this craziness before we say goodbye. Or is it crazy? Is it fair to characterize it as crazy? Uh, so I I do think it's getting a little bit frothy at the top end, but not as frothy as a lot of as a lot of people make out. I, I I think the reality at the end of the day is that we have persistently undervalued how valuable client relationships actually are. You know, I'd I'd written about this even on the blog years ago. Uh, in fact, I'd written a whole article before the PE firms came in of like, you know, just here's how a PE firm would probably look at an advisory firm. I'd actually written it back when you know, the VC firms were investing into the robo-advisors and people were saying, like, why on earth would you put that much money into a robo-advisor at that valuation? And, and the answer really came down to because the lifetime value of a single client is just absolutely immense. You know, if, if I take, you know, the proverbial million-dollar client at a, at a 1% advisory fee, so, you know, $10,000 a year to make the math nice and round and easy. If I'm running a healthy profit margin of, say, 25 30%, I can make $3,000 a profit on that client. Now, you know, what we saw in the recent McKinsey price metric study, average advisory firm is running a retention rate of almost 95%. Top firms we've seen even in your investment news ensemble practice studies are, are often doing 97, 98% retention right. rates. Right. So if I'm getting a 97% retention rate, I have a 3% attrition rate. If I have a 3% attrition rate, that means on average, I only lose a client. Like a client will stay on average for more than 30 years. Just like that's the math of a 3% attrition rate. And so if I'm going to have a client that's going to stay for 30 plus years, and the annual profit on that client is $3,000, my lifetime value in profits for a single client is $100,000, right? Just three grand a year times 33 right. years. Right. Now we can get fancy with this around, it's going to go up for growth rates in the markets, minus client withdrawals, plus client additions, adjusted for some discount rates. So we can get some a little fancier on the math, but you're still going to come up with it's a really, really big number. That's a sweet number. It's a sweet number. Now, at the end of the day, if you want to actually earn that, like you do have to earn work your backside off for the next yes. 30 years, right? So I don't want to diminish like how much work you have to do over 30 darn years just to earn. But so many that of fee. these guys, like a Ron Carson, like you were saying, was selling, you know, 30, 40 years ago, Ron was selling insurance, yeah. you know, out of the yeah. The trunk so of his car. This right is the fundamental, or whatever he's put the I mean, work in. You know, this is the fundamental difference between recurring revenue models and not recurring revenue models, right? In the old days, if I sold that you know million dollar client like a an upfront A share for probably got a couple of breakpoints at that point, but maybe I'm getting two or three percent uh, upfront. Like I can take that million dollar client and make twenty or thirty thousand dollars once, or I can take that million dollar client and turn it into a hundred thousand dollars a lifetime client value, right? And so. 
yes, like recurring revenue models are really that much more valuable than transactional models. And so first, we just saw that writ large. That's why AUM firms have grown so much and commission-based firms have struggled. That's why AUM firms were already getting higher valuations than commission-based firms. But now what you're seeing is you know external dollars coming in saying, yeah, I think y'all still don't actually understand how valuable your own client relationships are. So if you're going <laughs> to undervalue right. your client relationships, we're going to we're going to value up the math for you and 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 get this to a to a better number. Now at some point just when we look at public markets in the aggregate, I mean, a lot of financial services doesn't trade at a PE ratio much above 20x. So, uh you know, I get a little bit nervous when I'm seeing like private deals happen at at these whisper numbers like 16x to 18x cuz at the end of the day if you're buying it, you're usually hoping to find someone to sell it to for a slightly higher valuation and there just ain't much room left. Even if you're going to IPO at the end, it's hard to actually get much of a valuation pop from there. But you know, to to have seen firms as they grow and get more stable and really hit those enterprise levels at scale at two, three, five billion dollars, where you've got you know a sizable enterprise with tens of millions of revenue and and enough employees to really have a lasting enterprise beyond you, the fact that these have been growing from six to eight times earnings to ten x to eleven x to twelve x to thirteen x to fourteen x, I'm not that dramatically surprised. Like these really are incredibly valuable enterprises that we build. And I think just we don't give enough credits to, yes, there's a lot of work for the next 30 years to earn that fee, but client relationships are incredibly valuable. And and again, that's why you're seeing so much activity around client acquisition platforms as well, because once you recognize that relationship could be worth $100,000 accumulated profits over the next 30 years, then we get back to other conversations like, so explain to me again why you only spend 2% of your revenue on marketing when clients are that valuable. And right. you know, the, the firms that get that are raising capital, reinvesting for growth and acquiring, and the ones who aren't, aren't. All right. That's great. All right. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for uh, taking your time and helping us out here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Hope it's helpful food for thought. We appreciate it. Absolutely. The financial industry runs on Broadridge. We provide the infrastructure that powers the trades, communications, and insights you rely on every day. As a global fintech, we deliver the next-gen solutions that promote resilience, digitization, and greater success, so you can run your business with confidence. What you do next matters most. We can help. Broadridge, ready for next. Okay, folks, now we have Ben Harrison, co-head of Wealth Solutions at Pershing. He's here to talk to us about what's going on in uh, the custody space generally, a few changes there at Pershing related to his responsibilities. And uh, we're going to hear about the the recently wrapped up Pershing Insight Conference, which uh, was virtual this year after, after, I think, being canceled altogether in 2020. Ben, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Thanks for being here. Let's start with this uh your your role there as uh co-head of Wealth Solutions. Talked about the the merger of the I think the custody space and the clearing or something. What was that about? Sure, happy to. So, and we're really excited about it. So, the whole concept here and this has been underway for quite some time and really a reflection of what we've been seeing in the industry really over the last 5 to 10 years, which is which is at a convergence of the business models across the registered investment advisory side of the business, as well as 
the wealth broker dealer side of our business in that what we know is that investors are increasingly selecting fiduciary advisors for their investment advisors. We are seeing a increased focus on broker dealers creating corporate RIAs. And uh, we had two businesses. We had a business uh, that I ran that was uh, focused on independent registered investment advisors. We had a business that my uh, co-head partner, Maura Creekmore, ran, which was focused on broker dealers that had corporate RIAs. And the needs of the segments were very much converging. At the end of the day, uh, our clients want a, a great high-touch service model. They want us to work really hard on making it easy to use our technology and integrating with the variety of fintech solutions in the marketplace. They want us to digitize the business, help them scale their business and become more efficient. And by combining our efforts, our human capital, our technology, and our resources in one common ability to serve uh, the wealth uh, segment really is a reflection of us serving our clients' needs rather than our own business unit legal entity structures. So we think it makes a lot of sense in the marketplace and we're excited about it. When did that change take place? And, and what does it look like to, uh, to RIAs? Sure. So the, the change took place at the end of April. We made the announcement. And right now we're going through really a transition period as we are you know, evaluating all of the ways in which we go to market in this segment. And we're going to continue to roll out solutions and the way in which we engage with our clients in the not too distant future. We've done some of that at Insight this week, which I'm sure that we're going to get into. But what it really means is a very laser focus on the registered investment advisor and wealth broker-dealer segment uh, at Pershing. It's moving our legacy advisor solutions business that you know that I ran into the core of Pershing as we go forward and just allowing us to have a very clear focus on the areas in which we want to grow and invest in our business. It's it's interesting, you know, when we took the opportunity to think about this reorganization, the first thing that we did is we wanted to be clear this was not a exercise around cost containment or efficiency from the standpoint of Pershing wants to wants to have less resources towards this and, and earn more money. It was really client experience driven. And we had a few guiding principles that were really important to us. The first was do no harm. So those uh, advisors and broker dealers that have a great relationship with their service team and the way in which they're served today, you know, we don't want to upset that. But we do want to improve upon it and expand upon the way in which we serve firms. So you know, we're excited about it and more to come. How much of this, uh, these these changes, and, and just as an aside, there's nothing wrong with Pershing doing something to make a little bit more money. Nobody's going to judge you for that. But how much of this was driven by the consolidation of TD and, and Schwab looking like it's going to be a force to be reckoned with once they get it all together in the custody space? 
Yeah, we've, we've been well along with this thinking for uh, for quite some time. So it's not, not a response to anything that we're seeing in the marketplace. It's really more of a response and a recognition that we have seen this great evolution occur really in the wealth ecosystem towards an advisory model. If you think about it, 10, 15 years ago, there was a wide gap between the nomenclature and the way in which a advisor that was affiliated with a broker dealer would operate in the marketplace versus an independent RIA. That has considerably gotten much narrower in terms of the difference. And at the end of the day, a holistic goal based financial plan supported by an advisor is very much the same in many ways in an independent RIA as it is in a corporate RIA, in, at least from in terms of the tools and technology and, and services required to implement that goal. So this was very much a reflection of what we saw in the industry and an opportunity for us to differentiate ourselves as a provider of services that could really solve the needs for growing wealth management firms that had complexity in their in their businesses. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about insight. You guys had to scrap your conference last year as I understand it and um you went to the virtual conference this year, just wrapped up, 3 days. How do you feel like that went? I'm I'm sure you were if not intimately involved, you were paying attention to what was going on over the 3 days. Give it some kind of a I guess, a, a grade, if you will. Break it down for us. Yeah, we're really pleased. Uh, and, you know, you're right, uh, Jeff, the pandemic last year, we just didn't have enough time to really put forward the production that we would hold ourselves, the bar to measure ourselves against to do Insight last year. So we decided to forego it. Uh, but we knew that this year we wanted to do Insight, whether it was going to be in-person or virtual. It became very clear early in the planning stages that it was going to need to be virtual. And the way in which we're uh, really thinking about this is, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the metrics behind the conference. Normally, we have about 2,000 attendees at our conference. This year, we had close to 3,000 registered wow. for the event. So. It's actually expanded our opportunity to get our content out in the ecosystem and for advisors, as well as so many of other participants in this wealth space to engage with our content. I love the content this year. I thought the agenda was extraordinarily strong. And as I think about the future, I believe that much like everything else that we're thinking about in our work lives, uh, this concept of hybrid, I would imagine that events like Insight will now need to morph to have a in-person element, and and we're all clamoring for that. You know, we all want to be back in person, right. great networking, etc. However, there are people that can't get out on the road or travel or leave their shops and still want to be able to view this content and we can stream it into their offices or into their homes on a more of an on-demand basis, you know, you know, at their choosing. So I think that we're going to see an evolution where you kind of need both in-person and virtual. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm really looking forward to I, I see that as the upside. There's a lot of places I'd like to go that I can't go. And um, sometimes I just want to go for one or two sessions or something like that. But hopefully uh, there'll be a way to get that all done. There's obviously logistics involved in that. 
sponsors are they going to want to pay for people in to be in the exhibit hall if there's only a thousand people there instead of two thousand or something like that yeah um, exactly bruce do you have anything for ben yeah hey ben i'm just curious you know you work with hundreds of broker dealers right thousand thousand for 800 or whatever I, i forget exactly what it was but you know, so many people have have pushed their support services to work from home. And whenever you talk to big firms about that, they always like to say, oh, seamless, you know, and all this stuff. But I just don't think that, you know, you have a if you have a big network of brokers and thousands of brokers and financial advisors out there, you know, in regions all across the country, and then you have all your people working from home, it must not or fifty percent or seventy percent of your staff working from home. I just don't think it could be e- as easy, you know, from like a compliance perspective or oversight, you know, or trading right or execution. Like you guys are, that's that, that's your that's your bread and butter. How is that all shaking out from your point of view, and how does that affect the financial advisor? Do you think advisors are going to be cool if I'm a big broker dealer network and I tell all my or most of my, you know, support staff to just keep working from home? Or are they going to, you know, so I can trim my real estate expenses? Or do people need to be back in the office? What are you hearing? That, that is the million dollar question, Bruce. And look, I don't uh, I have a million you- dollars for you, <laughs> Mr. Harrison. I got a dollar seventy nine, my friend. So we'll call it the dollar seventy nine question. <laughs> yeah, well, I will take that question for dollar seventy nine as well because it's some, it's something that you we guys think at about. Pershing must be trying to help as much as you can because that's what you get paid for, right? That's what you do as an ultra back office, you know, for these IBDs and RIAs. So you must be steeped in the in this conundrum facing the industry right now. It, absolutely, and uh, that is our role, which is to provide an environment for. These firms to be able to deliver a great client experience and have the tools technology to execute exactly in in both a both a in person environment as well as virtual. And look, we've learned a tremendous amount over the last fifteen months of living through this. And in terms of the grade that I would give us and our industry and advisors in general is a ve- is very high marks. Uh, we've seen our business be extraordinarily resilient. We've seen very strong growth in terms of net new assets to our platform and growth of, of account volume at record levels and an influx of, of business. We've seen very strong risk management controls in a extraordinarily volatile marketplace uh, over the last year plus. And if you think about it, the the world has has evolved and this was a great experiment to, you know, this was resiliency testing real time. But if you think about the old world, you know, back to your compliance question, we're not printing out blotters anymore and people are you know, signing off on hard copies, everything that we have uh, what, what designed. What have been some of the key areas, though, where there has been problems? I mean, it, it it seems like, you know, with the trading issues with GameStop and everything, right, that was more of a classic day trading issue than, you know, everyone piling into a stock at 929.59 or whatever on a Monday morning or Tuesday morning, than like a compliance and oversight issue. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think that uh, generally in in our businesses, uh, we've seen strong resiliency and very much 
firms on our platform, as well as as we have been able to operate in a very consistent manner, uh, BAU type of manner. I think that as we think about the future of work, and we're con- we're going through this right now at BNY Mellon Pershing, you know, we we intend to embrace a hybrid environment and. Uh, we don't think that uh, being at home five days a week, fully virtual, is the right balance for our employees, for our clients, or, or for the industry in general. But we also don't believe that probably going back to a five-day in-the-office type of environment is uh, what the world is going to look like. So we believe that we've proven that we can maintain a high quality of service for our clients, that we can have strong risk management controls and you know cyber is is a big concern these days but we we feel very confident in that risk management uh, capability but we think a hybrid environment is the is the way of the future and and frankly for advisors it really gives the ability for them to engage with clients in a in a virtual first type of manner but also get out and, and begin to start seeing their clients uh, again as well. So it's created flexibility. It's created an ability to scale the business and not have as big a footprint of real estate, as you mentioned. So it's, it is the workplace of the future is, is more of a hybrid environment. Okay, thanks. Hey, Ben, we, uh, I already alluded to or mentioned the Schwab TD combination turning what was the big four custodians into the big three, which Pershing is still very much a part of. What is custody looking like? What's kind of the evolution? Obviously, something as big as Schwab TD has to cause Pershing to feel like they need to make make some adjustments, right? Yeah, I mean, we love our position. I mean, I think that what custody looks like uh, is, Jeff, as, as you know, there is a tremendous amount of really capital coming into the registered investment advisory and wealth management space. Uh, so that is creating a number of uh, things that are uh, ha- happening in our ecosystem. We're seeing mass consolidation in terms of we still operate in a very uh, highly fragmented business. We're seeing mass consolidation of uh, RIA firms you know, being rolled up uh, by strategic acquirers. Uh, we're seeing a inflow of really sophisticated fintech uh, solutions to, so firms can achieve scale and efficiency and an elevated client experience. And that's expanding uh, the service set that a wealth management client is going to want access to. Uh, wealth clients want more than just investments, they have expanded their need for integrated solutions such as banking and all of the other areas of uh, planning and uh, tax advice and you name it. We've seen firms expand their their service offering to, to end clients. So that's putting more uh, on the custodian in order to deliver beyond just custody. And that's very much a part of our strategy. So we know that there are competitors coming into the space because this space is uh, a great business to be in, and it's a the fastest growing channel of all of retail financial advice. And that's why we see new entrants coming into the space. It's really validated our model. What we're doing at BNY Mellon Pershing is we have a very strong foundation in being a top three uh, custodian, as well as the number one clearing provider 
uh, in the marketplace for, for broker dealers. And our wealth business serves independent RAs, corporate RAs, uh, broker dealers, and trust companies. And we're really positioning our business to be the custodial platform of choice, but also then building on top of that additional capabilities such as the managed account multi-custodial platform that we announced that we're building at Insight. We have robust integration capabilities that we announced our next generation integration portal that we are bringing to the marketplace at Insight. So it's about going beyond just core custody and really delivering high impact solutions that can help firms scale, achieve efficiency and improve their operating margins. So we're going to continue down that path. To be to be fair, core custody isn't enough anymore, is it? I mean, you have to provide all these practice management services and banking and everything else, don't you? Well, Otherwise, the RIAs are, right? They're moving in that direction too, to being comprehensive wealth management. Right, but but the RIAs they they want much much more from a custodian these days. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that that burn valuation. I mean, geez. The expectation, we're all held to a higher standard around expectations of service, of technology, of consultative support and advice. So, absolutely, that is paramount these days. And, And that's why we really believe we're positioned well because this is the this is the only business that we're in. We're we're a B2B provider. We power financial institutions and really want to be viewed as the most trusted and strategic provider for for wealth management firms. Well, what what about that unique position of being the only B2B of the major custodians? Do you feel like that's a that's something you're you're leveraging enough there at Pershing? We do. There's tremendous alignment in the relationships that we have with uh, firms on our platform. We only grow when they grow. Our strategic vision is always led by an intermediary being the tip of the spear. And uh, that's how we're going to build our business. Think about our technology. Think about our workflows and the way in which we power our platform. And as we see firms in this evolution from practice to business to now emerging enterprises, there's no other firm in the marketplace that has as deep and broad a set of capabilities as BNY Mellon Pershing does to be able to support multi-business line, multi-location wealth enterprises. And in order to do that, we also need to do that for the smaller practices. And, and uh, we have that capability to do that. But as you scale, you can, you're really never going to be able to outgrow the capabilities that we have on our platform. Yeah, I definitely want to ask you about smaller practices. But first, I want to ask you, we, we just had Mike, Michael Kitsis on, uh, as the guest prior to you, and he has pushed for this for a while. We didn't talk about it in our conversation just now, but he, is, he has talked about custodians charging RIAs a fee. To, I mean, how has that got any potential of gaining traction? Well, uh, we had Michael uh, at our conference as well, and and he's always got terrific insight. I mean, I think that what we're going to start to see is there is going to be a pendulum swing in terms of the way in which the the economics are going to work in the wealth management custodial ecosystem. So for, for a long time, we've been saying that that 
has been ripe for disruption. Uh, and much of the way in which a registered investment advisor pays for services is is the clients really uh, pay the freight in terms of whether it be custodial fees or or cash balances or or other ways in which uh, custodians make money on on the platform. There, uh, as you as you noted before, the expectations are rising each and every day in terms of the service expectations, the uh, need for highly compliant tools, strength, stability, uh, resiliency of a platform. So I believe that over time, we are going to see a, a premium that advisory firms are willing to pay in order to, to maintain that level of expectation that they have for their service provider. I don't know if we're there yet, but you know, if Michael keeps talking about it, maybe we'll get there. Yeah, that's a that's something definitely worth watching. It seems like one of those things that might take a, a, a while to get there, though. What about this? You, you mentioned uh, smaller RIAs, or maybe I mentioned it and assumed you mentioned it. But um, when when the Schwab TD thing first was first announced uh, more than a year ago, there was a lot of talk about, about fallout, smaller RIAs not being welcome at Schwab. I don't know how much of that is just noise or or what, but obviously smaller RAs are going to be less profitable for a custodian because obviously you know custodians do make money off the RAs. That's why they give them all that stuff for free. What is Pershing's kind of position in terms of rolling out the welcome mat to RAs that are you know not multi billion dollar firms? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that we did in terms of evolving our strategy is last year we expanded our addressable market. We we typically had a minimum of two hundred and fifty million dollars because we focused on the larger RIA and really created a a category of our own serving those complex firms. Uh, but we have all of the scale and resources to serve a wider audience of of registered investment advisors. So we moved our minimum down to uh, 100 million. So we work with SEC registered uh, RIAs. And we believe that's important because in order to be a a key provider, you really need to have an offering across the continuum. And at Pershing, we have historically served uh, practices very effectively via our broker-dealer clients. And so we made a, a strategic uh, decision to move in that direction. Uh, it has been uh, beneficial. We've, uh, as I mentioned, we, we have seen uh, strong growth uh, on our platform in terms of new assets coming on, both from our existing uh, clients from an organic growth perspective, as well as new clients. Um, you know, I think, as you know, and I know, uh, Jeff, it, it takes time. I think that I still think it's a wait and see type of mentality from some of the firms that are on the competitor's platform. We know that the merger integration is going to take a considerable amount of time. I'm sure that they're uh, they're working through that. You know, we've got a tremendous amount of respect uh, for for our competitors, but we're also opportunistic and we believe that we can be a great landing spot for firms that really want a high level of uh, client service a great platform and that alignment uh, with a strategic partner. Okay. I just have one more question and I'll pass it over to Bruce, but this, and this is an open-ended question. So I apologize in advance. What are some of the challenges that you see right now facing the wealth management space from your perspective there at, uh, at Pershing? 
Yeah. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in this space right now. But at the same time, with opportunity, it really uh, it creates uh, you know a need for firms to really prioritize. One of the things that we're seeing in terms of growth pains uh, in terms of the advisory space is really finding scale. Firms are investing in technology to help them become more efficient and automate things, but that technology is not always talking to each component of that technology isn't always talking to one another. So there needs to be further, deeper integration and synergies that can become uh, out of that uh, ability to find scale. Another area that we consistently see with uh, firms is really driving growth. We know that uh, advisors have traditionally gotten you know, 70% of their new business from, from client referrals, which there's no better way to grow your business than to get client referrals. But the stakes are going to be continuing to rise and you really need to have a systematic, disciplined approach to be able to implement an omni-channel type of business development strategy so you can get clients virtually via social media or digital channels so that you can not rely on a on a single rainmaker within your organization or a referral from clients and have multiple ways to grow. Client experience is another one of those areas that everybody's looking for a leg up in terms of what the client experience of the future looks like. And then finally, I would say uh, talent acquisition is huge. There's just not enough professionals in this space right now for the demand. So firms are always looking to hire and recruit talent. And the fact of the matter is uh, there's not enough diverse talent uh, in our space. And clients are going to expect uh, us to have diversity and uh, a different profile of, of the types of individuals that, that we have in all our businesses. And that's a major major gap right now. All right, Bruce, do you have anything else for, for Ben? Yeah, just one last thing, Ben. Has there been any decision about next year's Insight? It's one of the big meetings in the industry, kind of a touchstone. I know we, one or two people from Investment News are always there, of course, on our editorial side. Just have you guys decided what's what's happening that will people be in Orlando next year for that? We're going to be in Dallas next year, and uh, we're looking forward to it. Dallas in June? Dallas in June. <laughs> all right, all right. Make sure to buy me an ice cream cone with a dollar seventy nine that you got. We, yeah. the, the the marketplace has gone to more of a business casual environment. We don't we don't wear ties as much in this business anymore. So it might be a little humid, but I think we'll find a way to get through. All right. Well, that sounds good. Great, great to be with you guys. Yep. Thank Thanks you so for much. being here, Ben. Hey, Jeff. That was another great episode of the Investment News. Podcasts. If it's Monday, that means there's a new episode of the podcast for our listeners. We want to thank our sponsor, Broadbridge Financial Solutions. It's a big global company that does all kinds of financial services stuff from proxy statements to annual reports and other kinds of brokerage services. We want to thank our guests, Michael Kitsis of Buckingham Strategic Wealth and Ben Harrison from Pershing. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our spectacular producer. You can find the podcast on investmentnews.com, of course, as well, as well as Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple, please. Follow us on Spotify. You can reach out to Jeff Benjamin 
at Benji Ryder on Twitter and me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week.